all those bourgeois fools ensconced in their air-conditioned cars, in their villas, surrounded by trees and flowering plants, how could they think that everything was all right? This week on Selected Shorts, haves and have-nots. She wondered whether her failure to notice these people had made them invisible. She had trained herself not to look at them, as if they could exist only in relationships she controlled. I'm Kate Burton, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction, read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. One easy way to broaden your horizons is to eliminate boundaries, and this show does just that. The three stories you'll hear were read at a show produced in conjunction with the international literary organization Words Without Borders. For those of you who may not know, Words Without Borders collects, translates, and publishes literature from writers everywhere around the world. Our first story was selected by the essayist and novelist Siri Hustvet. It was written by Eveline Trouillot a Haitian author who lives in Port-au-Prince and writes in French and Creole. Detour shows us an unsettling encounter between the haves and have-nots. A middle-class woman takes an unplanned detour on her drive home and winds up in a crowded market on the other side of the poverty line. To capture the tension between the woman and one particular man in the crowd, we cast two actors, Rita Wolfe and Ariane Moyed. Here they are to read Detour. At first, Eleonore had been amused. Why had she taken this detour? A whim, a random impulse, and seemingly not such a bad one. But she began shaking her head in commiseration and mild indignation. How could anyone let people live in such conditions? Soon her hands grew moist with unease. She shouldn't have chanced these unfamiliar roads, these broken traffic lights with their pitifully leaning poles, these faces that looked more and more sullen, these smells reaching her even through the closed windows of the Honda. Noise infiltrated the car despite the voices of 70s pop singers coming from her favorite CD compilation. By the time she realized her uneasiness, it was too late to turn back. She found herself in the midst of chaos. Trucks laden with bunches of plantains stamped with the names of their owners. Goats trussed up and bound together. And in the rear, human cargo with clothes and faces stained with dust and yellow-brown mud. Between the enormous trucks, dilapidated little cars, the kind that always seem crammed with poor families en route to weddings or the cemetery, the huge rattle-trap buses salvaged from Florida, their grimy windows broken or laced with cracks, their exhausted, ravenous passengers gazing out vacantly, all in single file and all moving at the pace of resigned and overburdened snails. The metallic blue of Eleonore's Honda gleamed like a doll dressed for a fancy ball amid a crowd of hobbling beggars. She would have liked to hit the gas pedal, veer left or right, make a U-turn, but escape was impossible. 
No way to turn the car, not to mention the mess that would result if she even tried. The infrequent cross streets were blocked by vendor stands, the hulks of giant buses, and pedestrians clumped together in wait for a van or a motorbike. She could only follow the others, bumper to bumper, until the next big intersection. Slumped behind his hardware stand, Jonas was surveying the scene, seemingly indifferent to the familiar disarray. The clunking shock absorbers, the vendors' guffaws and insults, the screeching axles of wheelbarrows pushed by scrawny men whose upper bodies strained with effort, the women with pugnant body odor that neither soap nor perfume would ever totally eradicate or mask. He couldn't afford to treat himself to a cigarette today, at least not if he wanted a hot meal before the day ended. The craving gave him a sudden urge to smash his fist against his hodgepodge of merchandise and send it rolling onto the filthy, noxious roadway. Half-rusted locks, electrical cords, packets of pens and lead pencils, assorted screws of all sizes, slot heads and Phillips heads, thrown together, a jumble of trash, and a pathetic semblance of order. He associated the junkie supplies with poverty and despair and sold them with reluctance, peddling them to the outcasts who made up his clientele, sometimes wore him down, but most often it provoked his rage, directed it against him and others, against everyone. He didn't give a damn who was or wasn't responsible for this state of affairs. He would have liked to bash someone, kick their butt, anyone. He felt a strong desire to dump everything onto the cars that were lined up in front of him with no prospect of moving forward or backward. Prisoners like him of this nauseating street. When his eyes fell on the blue Honda, his face remained impassive, but he sneered inwardly. What was this woman doing here? Her pampered appearance was an affront. With automatic resentment, he eyed the car that was too flashy, too pristine, despite the splatterings of mud it had accumulated since daybreak. He knew perfectly well that Madame had started her journey at the wheel of an immaculate car that some poor guy like him, who migrated at great risk from his province or from a shanty town perched on a hillside above the city, had buffed her car at the crack of dawn, hosed it down, hosed down the wheels, shaken out the floor mats, polished the windows until they gleamed. He knew because in a life that had swung between keeping his head above water and sinking beneath the waves, he had once landed at a villa in Thomasin as a custodian and a handyman. His employers talked about all sorts of things in front of him, sometimes switching to English when they discussed the salaries of the employees at their restaurant in Pétonville. He knew enough to understand that they were afraid of being robbed by those poor men and women whose meager wages squelched any feeling of loyalty. His employer's stinginess did not particularly surprise him. Everything in their villa was under lock and key. Madame Gertrude 
the head housekeeper, an old hen who had toiled for decades in their employ, oversaw everything with a laughable, misplaced pride, totally unaware that they treated her like a domestic animal. Not as well, in fact, as Saffron, the little dog they regularly drove to the veterinarian. Saffron slept in the villa, in the vast recreation room where the children gathered to watch TV and where relatives and regular visitors were entertained. The old woman slept in the outbuilding, in a little room that was tidy enough, it's true, but not in the main house like Saffron. For his part, Jonas slept in the storage room, just like the cleaning lady who the local shopkeepers said was replaced by the owners every six months. The temperature plummeted at nightfall on the heights of Thomasin, and they shook with cold in their unheated rooms. Finally, after five nights of shivering in the penetrating February fog, he requested a blanket from Madame Gertrude, who referred his plea to the mistress of the house. Three days later, the old woman presented Jonas and the cleaning lady with worn-out, threadbare blankets, which she admonish them to treat with care. The blankets were to be given back when the employees left their jobs. Before returning his eight months later, he deliberately made large holes in it. <laughs> He'd become fed up with rising at dawn, immersing his hands in the bitter cold water to beautify Madame's car, then doing the same for Monsieur's four by four. After that, he was expected to sweep the courtyard, play the apprentice gardener, and finally to mop the floor and wash the windows while remembering never to show his annoyance or reveal the pent-up resentment that was growing in him. He sensed the same bitterness in the often agitated movements of the domestics and in the fleeting scowls of the fruit peddler forced to haggle over a few coins for her basket of oranges. All those bourgeois fools ensconced in their air-conditioned cars, in their villas, surrounded by trees and flowering plants, how could they think that everything was all right? That the well-behaved population didn't hate them? That they could count on apathy and passivity indefinitely? That none of that would ever change, that they would be forever insulated from the wrath of the downtrodden? Through the car window, Eleanor's gaze met his. The woman's raw, runaway fear met the man's wild, scathing contempt. Eleanor tried in vain to prevent her expression from reflecting the panic that gripped her guts. Where could she run? Where could she hide? Clutching the steering wheel, she no longer felt the cool gusts of air conditioning. Beads of sweat were running from her temples, but she hesitated to wipe her face. As if such a gesture would call attention to her, she suddenly felt exposed, vulnerable, and isolated. One day, a somewhat cynical friend had reproached her for being too attentive to other people. You can't go on living in this country if you care about everybody. You have to learn to close your eyes to certain things. It's like uh, when you're driving. 
Almost all the roads are bad. If you try to avoid every little pothole, you'll never get where you're going. If you fret about every petty vendor in the road, you finish before you even begun. You just have to plow straight through and not worry about splashing mud on them. After all, you are not responsible for the state of things. She wondered whether her failure to notice these people had made them invisible. She had trained herself not to look at them, as if they could exist only in relationships she controlled, where they were always in positions of dependence and inferiority, where their non-existence stemmed from inexorable forces. In doing so, had she reduced them to mere shadows? Could she, in turn, become invisible by the strength of her will? Could she disappear in this environment where she felt herself so different, so removed from her own class, attracting suspicion and resentment? The car windows failed to block the noises, odors, and stares. Though she had always refused tinted glass, she now wished she had bowed to the pressure of her family. She would have had at least the illusion of being sheltered from the increasingly hostile attention that surrounded her. To his great astonishment, Jonas was much more amused than indignant as he observed the woman. Maybe that was because he felt her discomfort, because he could imagine her inner thoughts, her habits, the aroma of the perfume she might be wearing, perhaps the same fragrance that used to permeate the private rooms of his former employer when he mopped the floor, followed by a more intimate scent filtering down to his groin. To hide his growing erection, he would purposely knock over a disinfectant bottle, earning reprimands from Madame Gertrude. No doubt the interior of the blue Honda gave off the opulent smell of a new car. She was probably listening to her CDs, instead of relying on the local radio stations and the bumbling remarks spouted by overambitious announcers. Had she perhaps changed her heeled sandals for flip-flops that match her dress? He had noticed her glasses before she removed them with a nervous gesture. Had she realized the crowd would guess that she would pay for them, could feed a family of six for a week? She probably didn't give a damn what went outside of her courtyard beyond the wrought iron enclosure bordered with flowers and climbing plants, her cobbled drive and her barred windows. Too bad if she could get to or from her villa by traveling down the rutted goat, squeezing past shacks surrounded by children with ravaged faces who were playing outside to escape the privation of their one-room dwellings and the hunger that gripped them nightly on the narrow straw mattress where they lay huddled together. She couldn't care less about the stands that the vendors were shoving aside to make way for her vehicle. She would lean on her horn so that her helper, that poor guy Jonas, refused to become ever again, even if it meant constant hunger, would come running to the open gate. He knew in his heart that he had quit his job for that very reason, because he couldn't get used to the unpredictable whims of an employer, 
returning exasperated from the office and to accusations made by a cleaning lady irked at her husband or by a, a crotchety old aunt wanting to prove that she still wielded some power over the hired help. He had resigned with no explanation, and his employers had immediately suspected him of some sort of larceny. Jonas had let them search him without batting an eye. He had even very casually opened his old satchel and silently spread out his few belongings. Then he had left, inwardly rejoicing at the foolish look of astonishment on Madame's face, at Monsieur's suppressed rage, and at the envious gleam in the eyes of the house staff. Today, this sense of satisfaction returned to him more strongly than ever as he saw this woman on his turf, completely adrift, ignorant, and precarious outside her stone walls and unprotected by her guard dogs. More than all the other wary, irritated, or simply defeated glances that she sensed around her, the gaze of the man slumped behind his jumble of hardware troubled her. She didn't dare turn her head toward him since she knew that he was following her slightest movements, that she was stranded like a fish out of its bowl, and that she was at his mercy. If he decided to pelt her with stones or to puncture one of her tires with a cheap screwdriver or chisel from his stock in trade, what could she do? What could she say? She could only scream or else stifle her fear, shrink down to disappear from the other's view and hide like a coward. Even if afterwards she could be sure of taking her revenge, even if afterwards she could resume her usual dominance and make him pay for his misdeeds. For the time being, he was the stronger one. They both knew it, and the windows of the Honda could not shield her. They both knew that too. Absorbed in her fear, her unchecked imagination giving free rein to the most violent scenarios possible, Eleonore felt a warm, steady stream of urine gush out and flow down her legs. The liquid made its way into her pale yellow flip-flops, the ones she always kept in the Honda for driving, and created an unpleasant sensation between her toes. The odor quickly reached her nostrils and burning tears surged from her eyes. She thought at first that she was too frightened to be ashamed, and yet her lips suddenly quivered in embarrassment when she realized that her courtyard helper would be shocked by the stench of urine hanging over the passenger compartment. Jonas didn't even realize that he had gotten up from his rickety bench studded with protruding nails that sometimes tore his pants. With a robotic gesture, he pushed aside the objects that were blocking his path and advanced toward the blue Honda. No one paid any attention to him, each one preoccupied with handling his own problems, with holding on to some tiny share of well-being. 
Some pedestrians were hurrying along, stepping over the murky muddles, jostling the stalls, barely catching up with a van, and hoisting themselves aboard uh, in muddy, sweaty desperation. Others refused to run, and instead trudged along as if they were already beaten down by the surrounding brouhaha. Drivers called to each other, between vehicles and hurled insults at the pedestrians weaving their way between cars and trucks, risking annihilation at any moment. The Honda hadn't moved an inch in 10 minutes. When Jonas reached it, he saw the woman start and cast a frightened look towards the door, which of course was already locked, and slouch in her seat. He placed himself directly against the driver's side door and leaned toward the window, his face separated from the woman's by a mere pane of glass. It seemed to him that their breaths were mingling. Eleanor had held her breath as if she could conceal herself by being as quiet as possible, as if the man couldn't see her through the glass as if his vicious, mocking eyes were not fixed on her defiantly and provocatively. She curled up in the seat. In spite of herself, her eyes met the man's for an instant and found themselves captive. She understood that she would never forget that face. He was pressing his fingers lightly against the pane, and then she stared mesmerized at the roughness of his palms, a still fresh scar, and the crookedness of his little index finger. She thought she could hear his voice, but was he really speaking or had she imagined it? She seemed to detect a, a murmur reaching her like a, a clumsy touch brushing her neck. She was unable to look away, her eyes locked onto that hand. Her clammy buttocks were stuck to the damp seat cushion. She moistened her lips. A suddenly intimate, muggy odor had invaded the space. Between them, only the pain where he had set his fingers. When the vehicle in front of her began to move, she remained immobile for several seconds. A disruptive chorus of car horns finally drew her out of her trance. Jonas had let go of the door and was backpedaling toward his stand. A strange smile on his lips. Ariane Moyed and Rita Wolf performed Detour by Eveline Trouillot. I'm Kate Burton. When we return, a soccer star and a chimp. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Kate Burton. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, 
you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. On this show, we're listening to works in translation that we selected with the literary organization Words Without Borders. We are always interested in stories about female empowerment and those that feature women in non-traditional roles. So we hope listeners will get a literal kick out of Reka Manvarheg's Woman Striker Has Killer Left Foot. Manvarheg is a Romanian-born author who now lives and works in Hungary. There's something childlike about this whimsical tale of a civil servant who morphs into an international soccer star. But there's a clear political point being made as well. Woman Striker Has Killer Left Foot is read by Adina Versen. One sweltering summer morning, I wake up to find I'm Lionel Messi, the FC Barcelona player. The sun's coming up, everything in the room is orange. My husband and I lie beside one another naked. I climb out of bed and stand in front of the mirror. I'm not shocked, even though his face is staring back at me. My sweaty brown hair is stuck to my forehead. I've got a receding chin and a pug nose. For a minute, I look at myself with my little beady eyes, suspicious. But then, what can I do? I lie back down. I hope my husband will accept me like this. My last thought as I drift off. The clock says eight when I come around again. My husband groans, he can't take the heat. Me neither. We go naked to the kitchen and lie down on the cool kitchen tiles. That's when I remember my experience at dawn. I turn to my husband. The first sentence I utter today is that I dreamed I was that soccer player, Messi, that he was staring back at me and smiling. This makes my husband happy. He feels like I dreamed something about him. <laughs> Later that day, in the early evening, we stroll to the city park. He's playing soccer with his pals. I plan to sit at the edge of the pitch, reading a book, glancing up every now and again, and watching as he dashes about, as he winks at me when he scores a goal. That's the usual routine. But now, when I see the ball, it's as though I've been bewitched. I can't take my eyes off it. There's no trying to get into my book. It doesn't work. All I can think about is the ball. When one of the guys kicks the ball out, I spring up and run after it. In those seconds, I imagine picking it up in my hands. I'm even a little worried whether or not I can throw it that far. But when I catch it up, my feet do the work for me. With a foreign mastery, my right foot controls it and my left boots it back. The ball soars in a perfect arc and there's something elegant about it. I can't believe it was me who did it. I look on, shocked, at which point my husband and his pals laugh. I'd put it back on the pitch from at least 150 feet. When I sit down beside my book, someone asks why I don't come play. I shrug my shoulders. I've never played soccer. I'm scared I'll get hurt. My husband gives a wave of his hand, not to worry. They'll go easy. It's pretty relaxed. Nobody's here as sprightly as they used to be 15 years ago. Don't worry. I promise I'll pass, snickers one of his pals. Come on, a bit of running around would do you good, my husband says. So... 
I put down my book and step onto the pitch. From the very first minute, the ball sticks to me. Soon, I'm running rings around my own teammates on my way to the goal. The city park crowd has seldom seen goals like these. <laughs> I'm honestly dancing with the ball. I tap it this way, I tap it that way. And it's like I have complete peripheral vision. I'm passing backward. Nine out of 10 shots go in. It's unbelievable. An hour later, we pack it in. I feel like I could easily play on, but the boys are already dying for a beer. We laugh our heads off about the stuff I pulled off on the pitch. If you started 10 years ago, you know where you'd be now, sighs my husband? Soon he starts feeling sorry that I'm a woman. If you'd been born a boy, you would have known at six years old what an incredible gift you have. I'm scared that he's wrong. Up until now, I've never shown any sign of feeling for any sort of ball. <laughs> I've always been clumsy and timid. Back in the day, school gym classes positively wore me out if we had to play basketball or volleyball. I found team games too fast and nerve-wracking. I was kicked out of ballet class at 16, and from then on, I was suspicious toward all forms of exercise. <laughs> ballet was the one thing I had any ability for, and even then, it wasn't enough. Thank God it's all in the past. I dealt with failure, I enjoyed university, and settled into public administration. I got married during university, and I've been doing yoga for years to ready my body for pregnancy. <laughs> I keep my body in perfect shape. Time doesn't bother me, or only a bit. I long for an air-conditioned three-bedroom flat with a rooftop terrace, a spacious fitted wardrobe in the hallway, and a dishwasher in the kitchen. And I want a spine-friendly Coyer mattress. This whole soccer thing is obviously something you wanted on some level. Ask yourself why you didn't dream you had a three-bedroom flat my best friend says, and shrugs as we sit on the cafe terrace. We leave it at that. The next day, my husband persuades me to go out and have a kick around. When I get home from work, I'm already tired, as usual, but him I have never seen so enthusiastic. He wants to teach me tricks, but it turns out I already know them all. At home, he shows me videos of the best goals in football history, and most of them I feel like I could do any time. <laughs> we soon get used to my newfound skills. We join others' games, too, and I realize that sometimes it's better to hold back. Some people take it badly when I crush them. <laughs> they get aggressive, they boop the ball at me, or tell me to get back in the kitchen where I belong. The park is mostly boys playing on the pitches. There aren't many girls. When I do meet those few, they tell me they've been coming for years and they practice a lot to teach themselves the moves that come so naturally for boys. Boys have been doing it since they were kids. It's no wonder the moves have soaked in. I only meet one girl who's as good as the boys. We've been kicking it for about an hour when she arrives. She's short, wiry, bull-necked. Her hair's cut short and gelled back. She's wearing a black t-shirt, black shorts, and black trainers. She expertly spits pumpkin seed shells as she sizes up the game. I'm standing goal, mostly out of sight. After a couple of minutes, she asks with a grin if she can join. After taking a few steps to warm up, she jogs onto the pitch. She's not just talented, she's smart. She looks around her while she's dribbling for someone to pass to. She uses the wall to pass back to herself. She shoots a goal practically from the halfway line. Afterward, she cracks her neck and punches the air. She looks like a boxer, too.
It's as though that's the price for playing well. I feel bad for her, for her illusions, for her sad toughness. So I tie my laces, come out of goal, and show her what I can do. I avoid her gaze at the end of the game, but she comes over and introduces herself. She says I'm pretty good and invites me to come to the club where she plays. Maybe they'll let me in. It never even crossed my mind to join a club. What a ridiculous idea. <laughs> my husband persuades me. It seems he has a dream that I'll be a professional soccer player. You're crazy, I tell him. No way. The last thing I need after work is to go to practice. Before falling asleep that night, I think about fate. When I close my eyes, all I see is the ball. After this, things happen rapidly. I get accepted into the club. I go to practices and matches. I score a huge number of goals. And a few months later, I realize I'm playing for the Hungarian women's national team. <laughs> After the Swedish Euros, where we get silver, well-known clubs want to buy me. That's when I handed my notice at work. The international press writes about me more and more. I'm considered a genius of my time. My technique is compared to Messi's. <laughs> I'm signed by the Danish team, Fortuna Joing. My husband and I move into a sunny house where the most amazing spine-friendly mattress is waiting for us. <laughs> the following year, my team wins the Champion League and experts unanimously attribute the victory to me. They say I play twice as well as the best that I play like a man. It might be because of this, but I start being attacked more and more. People try to expose me like I was some sort of fraud. A student in Copenhagen writes a thesis about me. Soon, the FIFA leadership is wondering what to make of my situation. In the end, they make a revolutionary decision. The division between men and women's football disappears. An hour later, I get a call from Real Madrid, and they imply they'd be willing to pay a large sum for me. We're in Spain by August. Woman plays Cristiano Ronaldo's position, writes the papers. I'm a bit nervous. I honestly don't want to disappoint the Madrid fans. In my first match, which we play against a Valencia in very good shape, I turned two stunning setups into goals, but they're playing at their best as well. By the end of the second half, it's 2-2. Then, in the 93rd minute, I score a beautiful free kick. The crowd goes wild. They cheer me like a hero. Even though the majority of my teammates are a few years younger than me, because of my short height and my youngish looks, they treat me like everyone's little sister. When someone scores a goal, I'm the one they put on their shoulders, whom they run around the pitch with, whom they toss in the air. The following February, I dress up as a koala bear for a costume party, and it turns out so well, they immediately pick a koala to be the team mascot. <laughs> Regardless of every goal I win, it bothers a lot of people that despite being a woman, I play for Real and earn almost as much as Cristiano did before me. FIFA receives a huge number of complaints. Many would like experts to examine what sort of effect my presence at Real Madrid has on football. But thanks to some influential names, nothing comes of this. Adidas approaches me, then Gucci, to promote their shoes. That's when the fashion industry discovers me. I work for the biggest brands. The only thing I'm not willing to advertise are Louis Vuitton bags. I state this several times. When a reporter asks why, all I say is, they're rank. 
It's as though the fashion magazines are released from decades-long burden. They're so keen on those two words. They are rank. They write in massive letters about the mopey brown Louis Vuitton bags. Elle names me woman of the decade. Many are amazed, but my husband feels great in our new life. My parents and gossip magazines both predict that our relationship won't be able to take the burden, all the attention I'm getting. But luckily, they're wrong. The truth is, without him, I wouldn't be able to get up in the morning, never mind go on to the pitch. He's not just my partner, he's my manager, too. He sets up a charity in my name for children in the developing world, and after a while, he's making frequent visits to Africa as a UNICEF ambassador. <laughs> we play El Clasico against Barcelona, and I meet Lionel Messi for the first time. I could have forgotten that dream ages ago, but it's still clear in my memory. Now, looking at his nose or his chin, his neck or his hands, I feel as though they're part of my body. They belong to me. I'm controlling them. The match kicks off, the two teams tear into one another, and he scores a goal. Then I score a goal. It's impossible to say which of us is better, more unpredictable. A couple of days later, we meet at a gala where I arrive dressed head to toe in Dior. <laughs> we present awards and receive awards. We laugh in front of the cameras, but when they disappear, he doesn't laugh. He just stares at me like a dog. I don't get what he wants. Maybe he's in love with me. I swear, I'll crush him next time. My husband comes home from one of his UNICEF tours, and I feel horrible seeing the photos with scrawny African children hugging his legs. I want to have children, I burst out crying. I always did. We will, my husband consoles me. It's just not time yet. But I'm 35, I howl. I have to go to practice. I have no time to take a break, but I'm not well. I cry, I scream, I swear to my husband, I leave Madrid, I leave everything, and I'll become a professional mom. Of course, I can't do that. After all, my contract, in which I promised not to get pregnant, doesn't expire for a while. We've no other choice than adoption. A few months pass, and children arrive on our sunny home, one after the other. I don't want a rainbow family like Angelina Jolie. My kids are pale, sour-faced Eastern Europeans. <laughs> Regardless, people compare our big brood to hers. For a long time, the Hungarian political elite don't know what to make of me. An album comes out about Hungarian football legends and is published with government funding, but I don't even get a mention. I'm not invited onto the Hungarian national team either, even though on several occasions I state that I'd be happy to join. A few journalists compare my situation to the legendary Fidenz Pushkashes. I spend another three fantastic years at Real. During the last winter, my game gets sloppy. The club hesitates to extend my contract and little birds are chirping about my retirement. They're sorry I only got a few years. But what years they were, I reckon I've still got a bit of spark in me, but I admit that I wasn't really convincing during the recent stretch. That's when Manchester United approaches me, and I tell them I'm tired, but they insist. They say I just need a new challenge. They show me footage that they believe proves I'm in better shape than ever. That's how I join United. I play so well, the world has never seen such a second wind. 
It's largely thanks to me that we win the Premier League and the Champions League, where in the semifinal we beat Real. But I don't celebrate my goals against my former team. <laughs> I like living in England. Initially, I enjoy the cooler weather. We have a traditional house and a well-kept garden. By this point, I have to commute in a bulletproof car, as do my family. I'm on the cover of The Sun at least once a week. Millions follow my posts on the internet. I'm 40 years old, but I don't even look 28. I'm asked to advertise anti-wrinkle creams, but I turn on the offers. I plan to write a book on natural beauty care. I'm a legend. Everything has to come to an end sometime. It doesn't show on the outside, but I can feel it. I say goodbye to MU and announce my retirement, but I get an irresistible offer from Saudi Arabia, and I decide to play one last round. My husband and I joke that with the money I'm earning here, I could pay off Hungary's national debt. My children here are school-aged, and they study at home with a private tutor. I don't want to send them to a local school. These Arabs are weird. I'm homesick for Europe. The game's not enough anymore. I can't take it for long. After two years, I hang up my spikes. Finished. Done. It's over. It's hard to be home. My mind is blank. I just lie about on the couch. There are countless things ahead of me, says my husband. I could be a coach. I could write an autobiography. I could design clothes. I could go back to public administration, I say. And at least that one makes us laugh. We need to settle down somewhere, but it's not easy with the fame. What sort of life are we going to live? I don't want my kids to be little Paris Hiltons, I say. My husband sits down beside me. He takes my hand. He has something to tell me, he says. It strikes me that I've been waiting for this conversation for a long time. He had an affair with the nanny, he says, and tears come into his eyes. It's okay, I say. I slept with the club manager. <laughs> but it means nothing. It really means nothing. Let's move home and live like we used to, he says. I sigh. I never got the Ballon d'Or, I say. You can't have everything, love, he answers. You can't have everything. We look at one another. Adina Versen performed Woman Striker Has Killer Left Foot by Reka Manvarheg. I'm Kate Burton. Our final story comes from Turkish author Yalçin Tosun. This story was recommended by the critic and writer Karen Mahajan. Muzafesh and Bananas is a bittersweet tale of two teenage misfits on a pilgrimage to the zoo. Aryan Moyed reads Muzafesh and Bananas. Cutting last period was my idea, but getting on a crowded city bus and going to the zoo on this hot day was Ali's. He wanted to see the old chimpanzee at the zoo, whom he'd felt an affinity with for some time. Whenever he couldn't take his uh, workaholic father and cubist paint his mother anymore, he came here to have heart-to-hearts with the old chimpanzee. 
He liked his calm and devil-may-care attitude. <laughs> he had first introduced me to Mozafesh when we went to the zoo a few weeks earlier. Yes, the chimpanzee's name was Mozafesh, or at least that was the name that Ali thought fit him best. Nearly toothless, with most of the hair on his body ripped out, this chimp had the most melancholic eyes in the world. Not caring at all that we were there, he gazed around motionless from the back corner of his unkempt cage, having detached himself from all relations with the world. When we got on the bus, we raced towards the empty seats next to the ticket collector, and as difficult as it was, squeezed in beside each other. We were both quite fat, but Ali's body carried more promise than mine. He was about four inches taller than me and had nice broad shoulders. I'm not even going to mention how his beard had already started coming in. These characteristics didn't make his ass smaller than mine, though. The moment we got on, the people on the bus started looking us up and down with those expressions of disgust. They probably reserved, especially for fat teenagers. Oh, those looks. If only I, like Ali, could succeed in not noticing them or looking like I didn't. When the bus had picked up the other passengers and began moving, yeah, I just started looking around. Ali was lost in thought, but I wanted to make sure that he had noticed that this girl was standing a bit in front of us. I nudged his leg with mine. He didn't notice. The girl wasn't even that pretty anyway. That nudge was one of those things I felt I had to do to pay dues to adolescence. And if I hadn't, I would like have felt like I was lacking something, but Ali didn't feel the same way. Facing out the window, murmuring something or another. Let's get some bananas from Mozafesh. I couldn't help giggling. I put my hand over my mouth to make sure that my crooked teeth didn't show. Mozafesh and bananas, it was just funny. Those kind of things were always funny for me back then. When I noticed that Ali wasn't laughing, I wanted to say something. I don't have any money. I do. <laughs> yes, he always had more money than I did, but unlike other kids who had money, he never used to show it off. It had almost become the norm for him to pay the bills when we went somewhere. I can't say that I, I was ever uncomfortable about it. Even if I had been, I wouldn't have let anything come between me and my only friend in the world. The not very pretty girl, who nevertheless succeeded in getting my attention, had moved a few steps forward, so she was standing right next to me. Her bag was bumping against my shoulder, and I was reveling in this. I lifted my head a bit and looked at her face at the corner of my eye. She had to be three or four years older than us, but she looked around as if she knew a lot about life. <laughs> I wondered if she had ever kissed anyone. And if she had, I wondered how she kissed. I had seen a lot of kissing in movies. Some people just suck on the other person's upper or lower lip. Other people stick their tongues out like audaciously with brazen speed. <laughs> I would kiss politely, I told myself. 
and I approved of this thought with a nod of my head. <laughs> I would neither boorishly suck lips, nor would I use my tongue. I would plant a kiss on those timid lips gently, like, like brushing the naked skin of a bird's wing. But I only had lips in my mind. Not a face, not a body, not a person, just, just lips. <laughs> the girl opened her bag like she was going to get something out of it. Then without getting anything, she closed it again. Oh, women and their mysterious actions. <laughs> I looked at her out of the corner of my eye again as if to show that I noticed, but she didn't see me. When we got off the bus, something Ali had said about women came to my mind. The other day in, in the locker room, we both heard the other kids saying what they wanted to do with Miss Isla, the gym teacher, slowly walking away. Afterward, I stopped and I asked him, do you like Miss Isla? And he looked me in the face with a flirtatious look. Dude, he sometimes called me dude. Dude, you don't understand women at all. I would make a bet that that woman is as cold as the poles. I bet when she has sex, she passes the time by imagining what kind of animals the stains on the ceilings look like. I wasn't sure if he really knew more about women than me or not, but he liked it to look that way, so I just believed him. Yet I was sure that we both had the same doubts, which we have never shared with each other, about the unlikelihood of our fat bodies ever appealing to anyone. Not saying these things out loud was one of the secret agreements between us. Then the topic of kissing came up, and he told me a few things about the ins and outs of kissing. According to him, kissing must be done with eyes closed and teeth, and he looked away from me when he said this, had to be particularly well, well cared for at all times because it is never clear when a person might want to have the chance to kiss. And also, if I ever gotten the chance to kiss a girl I'm into, like a friend on the cheek, I should plant my kiss on the borderline between the lips and the cheek. The girl would understand from that how much I liked her. <laughs> how do you know these things? <laughs> I would know, dude. <laughs> yes, he said dude again. Have you ever kissed anyone? He gave another suggestive laugh and silently walked towards the green grocer where the colorful fruits were aligned in rows. We put the bananas in Allie's bag. When we got to the zoo, the security guard at the door reminded us that feeding the animals was strictly forbidden because we knew this rule was not enforced. We didn't say anything. We walked slowly in the heat, escorted by the strange smell emanating from our fat bodies. In many of the corners of the zoo, there were couples interested more in each other than the animals. And our looks gravitated toward the couples and not the animals. As we approached Mozafesh's cage and looked around for the security guard, we pulled the bananas out of the bag. There were four bananas. 
Ali gave two of them to me. We were excited about seeing Mozafesh, but he wasn't there. As we were wondering if he had changed his cage, we learned that he had died the night before. Actually, he had committed suicide. The security guard, who looked indifferent at the forgotten bananas in our hands, didn't use the word suicide, but that was the conclusion Ali came up with after hearing what the man told us. The night before, Mozafesh had gotten himself into a run-in with the roughest young chip and gotten himself killed because he couldn't stand his baldness, his toothlessness, his, his painful joints. He had committed a sort of suicide as an honorable old chimpanzee would. As Ali translated these thoughts to me, he didn't show the slightest sign of sadness. But I knew that Mozafesh was the only creature in the world that I envied. And I knew how much Ali loved him. He had told me even more about him than he had told me about his mother and father. I mean, I didn't know what to say. I, I peeled one of the bananas in my hands and started to eat it. I didn't have the chance to eat a banana often, and at that moment, I couldn't think of anything better to do. And <laughs> Ali then came over and, and took the other banana, and he threw it toward the cage. Then he did the same thing with the ones that he was holding. And I just, I stood there with a half-eaten banana in my hand. And in that moment, I understood just how sad my friend was. While Mozafesh lay prostrate in his grave, I assume that chimpanzees are buried just like dead people, Ali's fat body shook as he began to cry. It was the first time I'd seen another boy crying. I put down my half-eaten banana and went over to him, and I put my arm on his shoulder. Get away from me, dude. He said, without taking my arm off his shoulder, I said that maybe there was a heaven for chimpanzees and that he shouldn't be sad. I regretted it the moment I said it. Just what idiocy. <laughs> he looked into my eyes and he put his arm on my shoulder and we stood there face to face, arms on each other's shoulders. He was still crying, heavy sobs. We were two fat teenagers facing each other on the grass in front of the cage. Mozafesh had died, and these two teenagers so often prayed the same thing would happen to them. Ali, I said, you haven't ever kissed anyone, have you? He remained motionless. He was trying to stop crying. With my hand, I held his chin, and I lifted his face, and I placed a kiss on the borderline between his lip and his cheek, and I ran away as fast as my heavy body would carry me.
Ari and Moyed performed Muzafish and Bananas by Yalchin Tosun. You could probably hear how moved he was by this touching story. I'm Kate Burton. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our hosts are recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Andrew Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space. <laughs> <laughs>